This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Phyllis Schlafly, part four. More than equal. The Nixon presidency was deflating for all Republicans, but conservatives perhaps had the biggest disappointment. On top of Nixon's failure to keep any of his promises, he left in his wake Gerald Ford, a milquetoast moderate who inspired loyalty in basically no one. It seemed likely that a Democrat would win in 76, and indeed Jimmy Carter beat Ford by a slim margin. Phyllis came out for Reagan in the primary, who lost to Ford, also by a slim margin, a sign of things to come. But by 1976, Phyllis was already knee-deep in a cause outside of electoral politics. It wasn't in her usual wheelhouse of foreign affairs or military policy or anti-communism, though it would be informed by those things. She was able to fold all of these issues into a single focal point with amazing efficiency. And in doing so, she was helping to build a whole discourse that would come to dominate the Republican Party to this very day. Family values. Family values as political rhetoric goes all the way back to the 1910s and the Prohibition movement. Fear surrounding the degradation of the family unit and the decadence of the new American society prompted calls from religious leaders and women's groups to return to the familial norms of the 19th century. But family values wouldn't play a role in party politics until the 1960s and 70s as a response to the civil rights and women's liberation movements. Black Americans were holding sit-ins and marching in the streets. Women were taking the pill and having sex outside of marriage. Divorce rates were at an all-time high, and gay people had ever-increasing levels of audacity to exist in public. Along with Jerry Falwell, Tim LaHaye, and Anita Bryant, Phyllis Schlafly contributed a great deal to the family values politics that would characterize the Republican Party for decades. In the 1970s, this work took two main forms, her activism against the Equal Rights Amendment and her book, The Power of the Positive Woman. The two were directly related. The ERA is what inspired the book, and the book was used to activate conservatives to fight the amendment. In a lot of ways, it was very similar to A Choice Not an Echo. The cover again featured a photo of Phyllis flashing a big, charming smile. It was not an academic book at all. It was written for the layperson. It was intended to activate Republicans, and especially Republican women, toward a specific cause. It was highly provocative and made some outlandish claims about the women's movement, principally that their goal was to tear asunder the family unit itself, hand over all children to the state, and turn women into lesbians. In my opinion, it's a much better book than A Choice Not an Echo. It's better written, and I think more persuasive, in part because this time the facts, some of them anyway, were on Phyllis's side. So let's take a moment to dig into the Equal Rights Amendment itself so we can start to parse out the two sides of the debate and how Phyllis won despite all the odds being stacked against her. I mentioned before that everyone in the political arena, left, right, and center, was certain that the ERA would pass. Republicans and Democrats, including Presidents Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, and Jimmy Carter, all supported the amendment. By 1972, it had passed both houses of Congress by huge margins, and by 1977, it had been ratified by 35 states, 
with 38 being the magic number needed to pass. So, what happened? Phyllis Schlafly happened. What exactly is in this doomed amendment? The text is very underwhelming and seemingly harmless. Section 1. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Section 2. The Congress shall have the power to enforce, by appropriate legislation, the provisions of this article. Section 3. This amendment shall take effect two years after the date of ratification. Sounds pretty straightforward and unobjectionable, right? But in fact, the amendment had been controversial among women ever since its earliest iteration in the 1920s. The debate fell almost entirely along class lines. Middle-class, mostly white feminists believed that the 19th Amendment wasn't enough to ensure real equality between men and women. So, at Seneca Falls in 1923, Alice Paul, head of the National Women's Party, proposed the following constitutional amendment. Men and women shall have equal rights throughout the United States and every place subject to its jurisdiction. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So, why the split? It's based on two very different approaches to women's liberation. The first is about the complete equality of men and women in every way, and the rights of women to seek personal fulfillment, especially through employment. The second concerns the special needs of women due to the existing differences between the sexes. The first approach was largely a middle-class concern, the rights of women to compete with men in the workplace and eschew the traditional role of a woman as a mother and homemaker. But many women who worked in factories weren't interested in being treated like men, who had to do more physically taxing labor, who had to work night shifts, who got fewer breaks and no time off to care for children. The ERA would have made various labor laws that offered special protections for women, exemptions from overtime, better bathrooms, weight-carrying limits, unconstitutional. Women who wanted to break into the job market on their own terms had very different interests than those who were already there, had been there for decades out of necessity. Phyllis was by no means a working-class mother split between the drudgery of the factory and the hungry mouths of young children. But she did remember her days as a gunner, and her acceptance of, even gratitude for, the lower wages she received for doing less physically strenuous labor. And what Phyllis really hammered on during the ERA battle was the military draft. The amendment would have made women not only included in the draft, but would also require them to serve in combat roles. This was the era of the Vietnam War. Being drafted into combat wasn't a hypothetical, it was an immediate reality. And here is where Phyllis did a kind of remarkable thing. She managed to draw powerful connections between the ERA and the fight against communism. With a feminized military, the U.S. couldn't hope to compete with the USSR's burly masculine fighting forces. According to Pentagon studies, women had only 60% of the strength of men. The Soviet army was 99% male and had no women in combat forces whatsoever. But what's more, the destruction of the family unit that was central to American values would make the nation vulnerable to communist ideology. And the decay of American morality and Judeo-Christian values didn't end there. Abortion would become a civil right, because only women could bear children and they had a right to determine their own bodies. Homosexuals could seek out jobs and teaching, adoption and even marriage. 
single-sex bathrooms would disappear. The government would implement universal child care, forcibly ripping young children from the arms of their mothers. And what good would the amendment do? How would women benefit? According to Phyllis Schlafly, not at all. It did not guarantee equal pay for equal work. Everyone agreed on that, even its backers. It didn't really extend any new rights to women at all, at least not explicitly. In The Power of the Positive Woman, she writes, Pro-ERA speakers go up and down the country reciting a tiresome litany of obsolete complaints about women not having the right to vote, not being able to serve on juries, and not being admitted to law or medical schools. All those past discriminations were remedied years ago, or decades ago, or even generations ago. They have no relevance to present-day America. Pro-ERA speakers paint a picture of American women in serfdom, treated like chattel and trampled on as second-class citizens, and then offer the Equal Rights Amendment as the remedy for an alleged oppression that exists only in their distorted minds. Gee, Phyllis, tell us how you really feel. Even today, it's hard to find contemporary ERA activists offering up any specific examples of what it would extend to women that other legislation like the Equal Pay Act or Title IX of the Civil Rights Act doesn't already offer. There are two main contemporary arguments in favor of the ERA. The first is that it would give the court system a classification similar to the one already defined for race, the difference between skeptical scrutiny and strict scrutiny which basically boils down to how persuasive an argument about sex discrimination needs to be to win a judgment. The second argument is that the existing protections for women can easily be eroded or reversed at any time. A convincing case to make in a time when abortion rights are being rolled back around the country. A constitutional amendment is pretty hard to undo, especially a popular one. EqualRightsAmendment.org goes so far as to reference Handmaid's Tale as a possible future without the ERA. Seems a little dramatic to me, but hey, hyperbole wins debates. Just ask Phyllis. So, once you dig into it, the ERA becomes kind of a tough sell. It's hard to say exactly what it would give women aside from a nebulous promise of easier rides through the court system, and opponents had a compelling case for what it would take away. Exemption from the draft, gender-based labor protection laws, and tons of special rights for wives, mothers, and widows. Schlafly spends a large chunk of the power of the positive woman going into the specifics of these privileges. A big one is a wife's right to support. Because it is women and not men who must bear children, husbands have an obligation to support their wives and children financially. He also has the obligation to provide a home for the family. Because the ERA would invalidate all state laws that impose certain rules on one sex and not the other, husbands could no longer be held legally responsible for caring for their wives and children. What's more, it would no longer be illegal for a husband to abandon his wife, and women would have no recourse to seek financial support for raising children. A woman who stayed out of the job market for years so she could keep house for her husband could not be compensated for her lost wages during that time in the event of abandonment or divorce. Schlafly writes, This would be grossly unfair to a woman because it would impose on her the double burden of financial obligation plus motherhood and homemaking. The law cannot address itself to who has the baby, changes the diapers, or washes the dishes. The version of the ERA that passed the Senate in 1950 tried to take this into account with a provision called the Hayden Rider, 
which was introduced by Senator Carl Hayden. It added a single sentence to the amendment. The provisions of this article shall not be construed to impair any rights, benefits, or exemptions now or hereafter conferred by law upon persons of the female sex. In other words, whatever special protections women enjoyed under the law would not be invalidated. The goal of the writer was to win more support for the amendment, but it backfired. A few opponents became slightly less opposed, but many supporters believed that the writer negated the very purpose of the ERA. It died in the House of Representatives. As for Phyllis, she said she would have supported the amendment had the Hayden writer been left in. And that might have made all the difference. You ever had Totino's, the pizza rolls? I loved them as a kid. I still love them. My mouth is likely permanently scarred from the molten lava inside of each microwaved Totino. Did you know they were invented by a woman? A positive woman? Rose Cruciani was the daughter of an Italian immigrant. She dropped out of school at the age of 16 to support her family by cleaning houses, and then at the age of 19, she married her husband, Jim Totino, and the two started a takeout pizzeria in Minneapolis in 1951, which later expanded to Totino's Kitchen. By 1962, they were mass-producing frozen pizzas, and the business continued to grow until they sold the company to Pillsbury in 1975 for $22 million in stock. Rose became Pillsbury's first female corporate vice president. Phyllis quotes Rose Totino as saying, I'm not a women's liber. Why should women go from superiority to equality? Women have always been exalted in this country. Now they want to be equal? I'm not a feminist. I enjoy being a woman. Success is wanting what you get, not getting what you want. She cites Rose as an example of how positive women should spend their time seizing opportunities, not whining about injustice. She quotes the famous columnist Ann Landers, Opportunities are usually disguised as hard work, so most people don't recognize them. But this wasn't a mistake that Phyllis made. When it came to the ERA, she knew the odds were stacked against her, but that was nothing new. She actually had to be harangued into taking a stance on the amendment. In the early 1970s, Phyllis had no interest whatsoever in ERA. She was much more concerned with ICBMs and warheads and the SALT agreements that would end the U.S. role as the premier nuclear power. Other conservative women activists tried to get her to take an interest, but she was first and foremost an anti-communist national defense junkie. But when she finally agreed to read some material sent to her by a friend, Phyllis did a 180. ERA wasn't some innocuous piece of paper that would have little to no effect, it was an incredibly dangerous Trojan horse that would destroy the family unit. And she knew that if state legislatures actually understood the amendment, they would vote against ratification. Now the task was to get them to understand. The feminist pro-ERA forces were, to be perfectly honest, kind of a drag. Boring speeches and angry crowds. Not Phyllis's girls. The best way to describe their strategy was antics. In 1978, she led a group of demonstrators to interrupt a League of Women Voters meeting about the ERA. 
The Reverend John Peck danced around in a gorilla suit and presented a banana to Phyllis, with a sign that said, Don't monkey with the Constitution. She then announced that Playboy had given $5,000 to the pro-ERA movement and led the crowd in an original song, she was very fond of writing protest songs, called Here Comes Playboy Cottontail. Sung to the tune of Peter Cottontail, its lyrics were Here comes Playboy Cottontail hopping down the bunny trail, trying to buy the votes for ERA. Telling every girl and boy you can only have your joy by becoming gender-free or gay. Attention-grabbing tactics were central to the Stop ERA strategy. But what truly made the movement clobber its enemies was an incredibly well-organized, precise, hierarchical network of activists. In Illinois alone, Phyllis had 59 top lieutenants, one for each county, whom she could notify at a moment's notice. They were able to mobilize a thousand women for any demonstration. All told, Phyllis had about 20,000 people working for her across the state, and she communicated with all of them easily through the use of the Eagle Forum newsletter and via chain calls, in which Phyllis would call a handful of women, who would then call their handful of women, and so on and so forth. Aesthetic and charm was a big part of the Stop ERA movement. These were housewives defending the rights of housewives, and they leaned heavily into it by lobbying legislators with the symbols of homemaking. Homemade bread with stickers reading, From the Bread Makers to the Bread Winners. Jars of homemade jam. Preserve us from a congressional jam. Vote against the ERA sham. And homemade pies. I'm for mom and apple pie. At a reception for the Women's National Republican Club in 1977, a yippie activist named Aaron Kay pied Phyllis in the face, shouting, That's for the Equal Rights Amendment. An agent of the group Pie Kill Unlimited, basically cream pie hitman, he said that he opted to switch from cream to apple for Phyllis because it was in the tradition of motherhood and apple pie. The incident left Phyllis with a badly scratched cornea but it was hardly the most venomous attack against her. Betty Friedan once said she liked to burn Phyllis at the stake. Activists with the National Organization for Women burned her in effigy. Gloria Steinem went after her for being rich. She was hounded about being a member of the John Birch Society. More on that in a supplemental episode, which you can hear at patreon.com slash reaction podcast for just $1. At a Missouri legislative hearing on ERA, a woman walked past her and hissed, I'd like to kick you. While on stage at a gala in Washington, Phyllis frowned as the lights came up and Senator Orrin Hatch announced that the ballroom would need to be evacuated immediately. The hotel had received an anonymous threat that two bombs had been placed under Phyllis's chair. Critics accused her of being disingenuous about her supermom skills given how much she crisscrossed the country for the ERA. When Phyllis told an Omaha newswoman that she had nursed all of her children for at least six months, this at a time when nursing was almost completely replaced by formula, it was even considered gauche, the paper published that she had hired a nurse for all her children. One ERA supporter told a news reporter that the Schlafly children were forced to live in servants' quarters. Another Alton activist wrote to the editor of Chicago Magazine, which had just published a profile on Schlafly, that... Residents of this area know that Phyllis has never been a homemaker, is a tyrant in her own home, and that her children are looked upon with pity. 
Another Alton resident, who claimed to have a friend who went to the same salon as Phyllis, recounted, She said those kids would come there with their faces dirty, dressed in rags. She said they did everything but hang on the chandeliers. And some of her detractors went so far as to try to tie her to the American Nazi Party and the Ku Klux Klan. Those charges were a bit harder to make stick. But as hated as she was by her enemies, Phyllis Schlafly was adored by her supporters. She was an inspiration, larger than life, and they would do anything for her. One of the things that I find most fascinating about the Stop ERA movement, and about Schlafly and her supporters in general, was that they were willing to sacrifice the very things they were fighting for in order to win. Housewives were spending days and weeks away from home, away from their families and their duties, to stop the ERA. Carol Felsenthal, in The Sweetheart of the Silent Majority, gives a wonderful anecdote from the Tuesday before Thanksgiving in 1979, when 15 women gathered in Sally Matthews' kitchen not to bake pumpkin pies or prepare green bean casseroles, but to gear up for battle. Scuttlebutt had it that the vote for ERA was coming up in the Illinois state capitol, and Phyllis was counting on a thousand women to show up in protest. Nancy Callahan's husband was just as mad as the blazes. It's two days before Thanksgiving and you're gallivanting off to Springfield? Are you nuts? But Mr. Callahan's favorite chestnut stuffing would just have to wait. Nancy could stay up all night finishing it when they returned. The women had been baking bread, but it wasn't for their families. The 15 of them loaded into a rented van at 6.30 in the morning, daring icy roads. They carried loaves of whole wheat bread wrapped in foil, gifts for the legislators as they passed through the crowd of rowdy but joyous housewives. The treacherous driving conditions made the trip take longer than usual, and when they finally arrived, they didn't find the thousand protesters that Phyllis had hoped for. They found 1,500 women in the freezing, rainy cold huddled under umbrellas. Phyllis was dividing the women into combat teams to target legislators with loaves. Be sure to attach the From the Breadmakers to the Breadwinner stickers, she told them. Let's huddle back here in two hours, because the TV crews will be back and we can make their deadline for the evening news. And don't forget to smile. The vote turned out to be an empty threat, Phyllis told them. But it was sure to come up before Christmas, and they would all need to wait for the call to come back to the Capitol with their bread and their smiles. On the drive home that night, well past dinner time, Nancy Callahan told the other women, I'd no sooner skip this than I would my son's Little League debut. Some things just take priority. Phyllis was methodical in all things, and training her girls for battle was no exception. Starting in 1968, Phyllis held yearly training conferences for a few hundred of her top lieutenants from across the country. You could think of it as an alternative to the National Federation of Republican Women Conference, but with much more emphasis on training troops for battle than luncheons and anodyne speeches. It was three days of workshops, speakers, and meetings, all geared toward turning the women into effective political organizers. But the conferences really took off once Phyllis started organizing around the ERA. Training ranged from starting effective letter-writing campaigns, testifying at public hearings, getting the Stop ERA message on the boob tube, 
holding press conferences, phone banking, fundraising, Phyllis suggested brunches to avoid serving booze, and even infiltrating feminist groups to uncover their organizing strategies. Conferences featured a room where women could study video of Phyllis debating Barbara Walters and Betty Friedan and other ERA proponents, and Phyllis held mock debates and evaluated the women's performances. I'm going to do an episode with clips from Phyllis's various debates and speeches for the Patreon, and you can also find tons of them online. As you might imagine, she's impressive. Phyllis led workshops that instructed women how to perfect their appearance for TV, wear a scarf around your neck, apply makeup in a natural way, sit like a proper lady. She stressed a daily exercise routine. Always a one-upper, according to Phyllis, the camera didn't add 10, but 20 pounds. She even held a contest in which the eagle who had lost the most weight since the last conference won a prize. Ugh. There were constant evaluations on everything from poise to speaking ability to hair and makeup. Schlafly understood and valued the importance of public relations and appearance, while her opponents, for the most part, did not. And it showed. On screen, next to Betty Friedan, the two made quite a juxtaposition. I'll play a quick clip from one of their debates, and even though this is an audio medium and you can't see the differences in their appearance, which are stark, you can hear how cool and collected Phyllis is compared to Betty, who sounds frazzled and exasperated. We want to talk about co-ed bathrooms and, and single-sex schools, which, Phyllis, you feel will be Well, under the present federal law, the admissions to single-sex colleges are uh, exempted from the, the fundamental federal law against sex discrimination. So we have some schools that have remained all women, like Smith or Wellesley, or Bryn Mawr. Now, that would become illegal under the Equal Rights Amendment because they discriminate, by definition, on the basis of sex, and you can have no exceptions in ERA. Now, I don't know why anybody wants to take away from women your right to choose a single-sex school if that is your choice, but I think this is the uh, psychology of compulsion and the intolerance of those who are pushing for a gender-free society which doesn't recognize any difference uh, or any separation of treatment between men and women anytime, anywhere. What about the schools that exclude women? Well, I think you have your right. You have your choice. 95% of our people prefer co-ed schools, but why stamp out the right of the minority that wants to choose a single-sex school? Betty, you have any comment? Well, I think that the basic thrust is that the uh, quotas um, and the outright barring of, of, of women to law school to... Uh, Name one law school that bars women. Until recently... Name one law school that bars women. Until recently. Harvard Law School barred women until, you know, fairly recently. Name one that today bars women. And now... You know it's illegal and a violation of federal law. But I wanted to say that the thrust of the, um, as I've said, we have a new law uh, barring sex discrimination in education. And it, it should, if it is enforced right, it should bar not only the quotas and outright, uh, denial of, of access to higher education uh, on the part of women or to uh, tracking that keeps women in high schools out of the best uh, 
education, but it, it also uh, should bar those indirect quotas, which make women n have to have higher um, grades than men to get into the same school and so on. But we already know that well, name one, that law isn't being enforced. In other words, in the name that one law school where women be, have to get higher grades to get into school. Oh, this is this is name uh, one. The, this is true in name in one. universities. I could name uh, I could name well, just 30, name 40, Don't name thirty. Just name one. What? One Why school where women right? have to get higher grades to get into school. Uh, I would have suggested the viewers to tell Mrs. Shoffley uh, the situation of the... I can name any number of them, so I'm not going to name Well, okay, uh, the upshot of what you said is that Smith and Wellesley would be forbidden to maintain themselves as all women's schools and would be required to go co-ed without any quota. Now, why do you want to stamp out their right? In every area, this is a, this is a denial of freedom of choice. But are you saying, fellas, that there is no longer a quota for women, that women no longer have to work twice as hard in schools where they are co-ed? That's correct. Oh, sure, that's correct. I'm how, can, how, how do we know this? Well, I'm in, I'm in a good law school now, and they have half women. You're okay for you, but not for the ones coming after you, okay? That's what I can't stand, the hypocrisy no of hypocrisy. someone who takes advantage of, of, of rights and opportunities and knows and is enjoying equality and then says and Look, then I was uses equality. the very advantages I, was, I got a degree from Harvard 25 uh, years ago. What? I was in equality with the men now. This is nothing new. Yeah, right. Can we move on to co-ed bathrooms? <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about that? Can you imagine the frustration? Don't name 30, just name one. Oof. But far and away, the most effective tool Phyllis Schlafly had in her arsenal was the Phyllis Schlafly Report and its little cousin, the Eagle Forum newsletter. These publications had a massive reach and were an incredibly effective propaganda tool. The reports were pretty short, usually three pages or so, and written in plain language that was richly descriptive without going over the average person's head. They were thorough, citing experts and explaining the most nuanced of laws in a way that was easy to grasp. They were persuasive, intensely partisan, there was no question about right or wrong in Phyllis's writing and activism. The ERA was the first major test of how potent Schlafly's newsletter and the organizational apparatus it supported could be, but it was far from the last. For every state that ratified during those eight years of battle, another voted to rescind their ratification. In 1979, the ERA became the first amendment in history to reach its seven-year limit without ratification. Now, a bunch of sort of complicated legal stuff happens after this. Questions around the legality of extending or eliminating the deadline, whether or not states could actually rescind their ratification votes, and if the ERA needed to be reintroduced to Congress all over again, start from scratch. In 1978, Congress passed an extension for ratification. An unprecedented move and considered by many, including some ERA backers, to be unconstitutional. While an amendment required a two-thirds majority to pass Congress, the extension was passed with a simple majority vote. In 2017, just a few months after Phyllis Schlafly died, Nevada became the first state in 40 years to vote to ratify the amendment. The following year, Schlafly's own state of Illinois voted to ratify. Then, on January 27, 2020, Virginia became magic number 38. Depending on who you ask, the ERA may already be the 28th Amendment. Remember, it takes effect two years after ratification. In 2020, 
Trump's Department of Justice issued a legal opinion that because the deadline has expired, the ERA is no longer pending. But on the eve of the two-year anniversary of Virginia's vote, Biden's DOJ issued a new opinion, and it was much less clear on the legality of the ERA's passage. It kicked the question back to Congress, saying it will be up to the legislative and judicial branches to figure this thing out. And indeed, cases are currently making their way through the court system on both sides of the issue. On January 27, 2022, the Democrats in the House of Representatives introduced a resolution to recognize the ERA as the law of the land. But will any such bill pass the Senate? My guess is no, probably not. And what about the states that rescinded their ratification? In February of 2022, West Virginia's Senate voted to rescind their ratification. Just now, as I am finishing writing this, Virginia's attorney general has withdrawn from a lawsuit seeking recognition of Virginia's 2020 ratification vote. He has said, Any further participation in this lawsuit would undermine the U.S. Constitution and its amendment process. And was Congress even within its rights to extend the deadline with the simple majority vote back in 1979? As I record this in February of 2022, we don't know. And it might be years before we do. In the meantime, legal watchers believe the Supreme Court is on track to weaken or even overturn Roe v. Wade this summer. For Phyllis Schlafly, the ERA wasn't just a massive handover of states' rights to the federal government or a Trojan horse that would turn us all gay under the guise of women's liberation. It was a matter of civilizational collapse. As she wrote in The Power of the Positive Woman, the liberated Roman matron, who is most similar to the present-day feminist, helped bring about the fall of Rome through her unnatural emulation of masculine qualities, which resulted in a large-scale breakdown of the family and ultimately of the empire. This might be one of the most foundational, quintessential elements of conservative thought, that they are the only bulwark against the decline of American civilization. This wasn't just a fight against women's libbers and tax-and-spent Democrats and godless communists. It was a fight against the greatest forces of evil, the whores of Babylon, the New World Order. And the right was about to get a champion in this fight the likes of which have not been seen since. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it. And consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is written and produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time.